Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren tried to read a letter penned by Coretta Scott King in the well of the Senate, and an objecting Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell decided that she should receive the maximum amount of attention she possibly could by silencing her on the floor right then and there. Smooth move, Xlax, for out of this dust-up, a new slogan of resistance was born. Meanwhile, you've probably noticed that Donald Trump's White House is maybe the leakiest one in memory. And this week, the Huffington Post told the story of the president making oddball late-night calls and complaining about the quality of Air Force One hand towels. But hey, should you be concerned by any of this? Well, the people who keep leaking these stories are pretty concerned. Finally... As you may have heard, one of the more potent members of Trump's inner circle is former Breitbart News media maven Steve Bannon, who is a different sort of conservative from your standard-issue Beltway Republicans. One way in which he differs, he's a full-on apocalypticist who believes America should be getting ready to fight multiple, potentially world-ending wars, which is probably going to be news to those Trump voters who thought they were electing a war critic who'd keep us out of such conflicts. Well, we're going to delve into where Bannon gets his ideas from, and I'll warn you in advance, you won't be feeling too optimistic by the time we're done, so it will be just like all of our other podcasts. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Paul Blumenthal, Zach Carter, S.V. Date, and Arthur Delaney. And here's what happened first. Hey, guys. Guess what? It's So That Happened, another podcast about politics, only this one is a little bit more dour than all the others. Uh, my name is Jason Lincolns. I am the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post, and joining us this week, as always, well, as most times, most of the time, we have uh, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And we have Zachary Carter. We're all still alive. We did it. We made it through another one of these weeks, man. It's going to be a long one, but one day at a time. So... Uh, we got to start right away. This week, the resistance got itself a new shiny slogan. She was warned. She was given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted. And who was it that was so persistent? Well, you've probably heard about her. Her name is Elizabeth Warren. She's a senator from Massachusetts. And this week, she uh, was pretty angry, right? Yeah, uh, there was a debate about uh, about confirming Senator Jeff Sessions to be the next attorney general of the United States. Who was too racist to be a judge in 1986. Uh, and as an example of, of that, he, uh, Coretta Scott King sent a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, Committee about how Sessions had suppressed voting by black people by prosecuting them. And so Warren was reading this letter on the Senate floor. This letter which Strom Thurmond had not put into the record. Senator Strom Thurmond essentially suppressed the letter in a sense. And so apropos <laughs> of Curtis Jeff Sessions getting nominated to be the Attorney General, Democrats, this letter had been hidden until recently. It came out recently. Right. And so they're going to read into the record, which, which, which is where it belonged all along. So Elizabeth Warren started reading it, and then we had a little bit of a procedural parliamentary thing mr president they are mr president the majority leader senators impugn the motives and conduct of our colleague from alabama as warned by the chair senator warren quote said senator sessions has used the awesome power of his office to chill the free exercise of the vote by black citizens i call the senator to order under the provisions of rule 19 mr president Senator from Massachusetts. Mr. President, I am surprised that the words of Coretta Scott King 
are not suitable for debate in the United States Senate. Okay, so a couple things. One, they're saying Mr. President because that's just what in the Senate you call the presiding person. Sure, sure, It's just another senator. Uh, This is for people who don't watch C-SPAN 3. And Rule 19 is a, a famous rule. It's also sort of arcane and obscure, but it's the idea that senators, it's a deliberative body and they're really nice to each other. They don't say main, mean things directly to each other. They don't even call each other by name. They say the senator from Delaware or the senator from Massachusetts or the senator from Kentucky. So Republicans, you know, this is selectively enforced, but Elizabeth Warren, because she said Jeff Sessions' name and mean stuff about him, is being called out for violating this rule. I mean, you could say that's one way of putting it. She said mean stuff about Jeff Sessions. She impugned Jeff Sessions. Another way of putting it would be to say that she was simply being factually accurate about a guy's political record. Oh, I mean, she didn't. She was reading a letter in which the word Jeff Sessions it's kind of like is somebody else's word. Jeff Sessions kind of impugned himself with his actions. Any political over debate the course of his career over whether he will be appointed. Let's remember but that. Okay, it's so good that we have these. It's a, this, well, it's a it's a quirk that the person they're talking about for attorney general also happens to be a senator who is still in the Senate. Right. So that's a weird a weird thing is going on there. Right. But oh, let's, let's t- emphasize the selectiveness of this enforcement. I mean, Ted Cruz is in the Senate. He just calls Harry Reid a liar all the time. They called Mitch McConnell a liar. <laughs> so just you know, he doesn't get Rule Nineteen down. You know. No. So that, that so well that was the whole the whole thing here is that why did Mitch McConnell do this? It backfired so epically at a time when the Democratic base is having women's marches to tell a woman to sit down and shut up and then explain it with this incredible catchphrase nevertheless she persisted instant was, yeah, i gotta say that was like your john banner imitation that was not a good mitch mcconnell uh, this is sort of a hybrid it was okay yeah uh, you know work on it i appreciate the effort the um the, that's a little bit better that's a little bit better i do not do impressions um the um <laughs> It is it is kind of curious because, you know, what ended up happening was that a bunch of other senators just read Coretta Scott King's letter in the in the well of the Senate and a bunch of male senators did. Um, and so and so it was kind of interesting because uh, her colleagues took up that task that people said the press and the briefing need to do is like when you're shut down, the next person asks the same question, the next person does the same thing. So it was it was an interesting moment of collective action among the Democrats and. I thought it really, really puzzling, too, that that McConnell did this, because had Elizabeth Warren simply read Coretta Coretta Scott King's letter, uh, it may have been noted by a few, you know, media outlets hither and yon. But the Huffington Post, it certainly wouldn't have taken on this kind of crazy life of its own that it has now. It's almost as if uh, Mitch McConnell's never heard of what people call. The Streisand effect, which is when you try to suppress a piece of information, uh, you can easily have it backfire, become more widely known. You mean well, like when Barbara Streisand attempted told people, to yeah. shut down uh, this website that had photographs of beachfront properties, including hers, because they, they were studying soil erosion, and and someone was like, you know, your house is on that, and she made a big deal about trying to get this guy to take this picture that had her house in it down off of this website and it ended up getting reported. Everyone looked at her house and then everyone looked at her house, (laughs) you know, which is stupid. It's called let some shit slide is like the opposite. Mitch McConnell was like, we didn't rule 19, the male democratic senators who read the letter because it was actually Warren's preamble to reading the letter that they were so offended. Sure. sure, Also, it was was such an epic disaster for McConnell. That in the wake of it, there were several conservative media outlets and uh, taking this line from an anonymous Republican staffer that actually it was all going according to his plan. (laughs) This is the best. To elevate Elizabeth Warren, the great villain of moderate voters, which I don't particularly find very plausible it's nuts it's nuts they it is true that within the the conservative the people who read conservative media you know we're talking this is like you know the federalist like uh you know the national review these places she is not popular but these people live in a relatively small bubble of conservative media consumers outside of that bubble elizabeth warren is like one of the most popular politicians in the united states well (laughs) elevating an opponent 
that you would find more favorable for a future contest is a political strategy, but it just, I don't think that's what was going on. Here. Uh, uh, there's no, she's no popular. chance. No, yeah. One, she's popular Two, I mean, look, if you, if you talk to people who know McConnell, they had been debating sessions for hours at this point in time. Sometimes politicians aren't playing 12 dimensional chess. Sometimes they just get tired and do something stupid. Yeah. Sometimes they're just frustrated. You know, I think that's what happened. I Sessions think, still got confirmed, by the way. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, have we had – I want to just let's, – let's, let's step on to the theory of, of Warren's popularity just for a second um, because have we had a really good test case of – whether Warren, who can easily be depicted by Republicans anyway as a coastal elite, she's a Harvard professor, she, she's from Oklahoma, but she's lived in Massachusetts her entire life. Um, it's, and of course, she talks about economic populism um, and has a sort of anti-Wall Street agenda most of the time. Um, is, it, is there any, like, do we have any kind of like test cases for Elizabeth Warren actually going into the hinterlands, the flyover country, and making a big splash. Because right off the bat, I think that I think that I'll accept your notion that maybe she's culturally out of touch with Middle America, but I will want you to get back to me when she's actually stumping in Middle America and offering people on the spot financial advice, I, we, which is something she could. We do. have that. We, I mean, economic populism is the thing that we know plays well everywhere. It's what got Trump elected. Also, we have the test case of Republicans uh, trying to stop Elizabeth Warren from being the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and winding up with her in the Senate as a result. Yeah. Well, they wouldn't yeah. necessarily have been able to field a Democrat other than her who could have beaten Scott. She's popular. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, you know, like I said, I think there'll be future tests for Elizabeth Warren to come as to whether her message translates to middle America, but I'm not as skeptical as a lot of people are. So back to this thing. One of the things that's really interesting to me is that far from a crazy, super-duper, 11-dimensional chess plan that McConnell had to you know, flummox his opponents, um, obviously what's happened in the wake of this is the, the sort of movement that's been uh, on a regular basis coming together and coalescing across America in the streets – to oppose Donald Trump and oppose some of his policies, uh, got new wind in their sails, right? Yeah, yeah. Look, That's the context of this. Yeah, and, and and look, what's what's been happening is you know the women's march is the first really big thing that happened after the inauguration. One point two million women came to D.C. for that. Just pretty amazing number of people. Uh, they keep getting people who came to that march and other marches around the country keep getting new reasons and excuses to organize and mobilize for different events. So there were a bunch of vigils held. There were anti-sessions vigils that one of the organizers of the the women's march helped, you know, helped coordinate in like 55 different congressional districts. This this event with McConnell shutting down Warren on the floor is now creating a bunch of she persists T-shirts, which are being sold everywhere. Kirsten Gillibrand is fundraising off of it. Move on is fundraising off of it. It is it is it is elevated uh, the level of energy in the in the sort of activist community. Um, just just giving them a new reason to be to be out there. And there's a this uh, further context, there's a mini consensus forming that this is a parallel on the left to what Republicans had with the Tea Party starting in 2009 as a a base-driven backlash to the establishment and, and, and the and opposing yet, party. And yet Bad news, everyone. Jeff Sessions was confirmed as attorney general. Oh, yeah. There's not a whole lot Democrats are going to be able to do about that. You only need a majority of votes. I mean, it's it, they don't have a majority. So, I mean, they're going to lose all of these fights on the Senate floor. The one area where they, they have a chance to win is in influencing public opinion. And on that front, this was a this was a pretty good week for Democrats. They also it, it worth pointing out they came historically close to tanking a nominee. That's it true. was the first time ever you'd have the vice president come to the Senate to cast a tiebreaker. And this vote is for on, on Betsy a, DeVos, a, the yeah. education secretary. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me. I've long had this theory about Democrats and what they've kind of done wrong uh, over the past few years in that their their compromising nature is, has has led uh, their the public perception of what they stand for to be watered down. Now, I, I think they've done – they've often act that way for virtuous reasons. They want to get lost past. They want to get half a loaf. Um, but what we see right now is they're taking L's legislatively. They're not, you know, DeVos is confirmed, Sessions is confirmed. Everyone who Trump has put forward is going to get confirmed. But they are still now leaving the impression that they actually stand for something. And people know far and wide what the Democrats stood for on this particular occasion. And if things go bad because of these nominees, 
people will remember who had the alternative point of view on the matter. And just to get back to the you know the, the point about Warren, uh, you know, being the face of this, who would you rather have be the face of of a, a sort of populist activist backlash to the Republican government? Would you rather it be Chuck Schumer? Or would you rather it be Elizabeth Warren? You would have Elizabeth Warren six days a week, twice on Sunday. And they're they're working together. I mean, the Democratic leadership gets this stuff now. They're being pulled by the nose by the, by the people in their party who are out in the streets, but they're they're coming along. Nevertheless, okay, we're we're gonna work on that. We're gonna Arthur. We're gonna work on that. I admire the effort. What matters? What matters is the effort. Okay, well, guys, thanks for thanks for this. Uh, we have a great show. You should stick around to listen to it. You should Got, persist. You should persist. <laughs> um, enough. Persist yourself once. Enough. Uh, persist yourself two times. <laughs> persist yourself for like 20, 25 more minutes, and I promise you'll have a great time. Uh, we will be right back. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. So uh, you've heard it said that nothing, nothing, nothing good ever happens after midnight. Decisions you make. Uh, well, unfortunately for us, at least from the standpoint of people who don't want to have a wild and crazy thrill ride of chaos, uh, our president likes to stay, likes to go to bed early and then get up way in the dead of night to start making decisions. And apparently sometime in January, he made a 3 a.m. phone call. And here to talk about this is Arthur Delaney. Hello. <laughs> and joining us is, for the second or third time, we have S.V. Date. Hey there. Who, along with Christina Wilkie, broke this very, very wild story about Donald Trump waking up in the middle of the night, picking up the phone, making calls. Story of the week. <laughs> yeah. Take us, take us through this incident. Right. Well, the president had some questions about... The dollar, the American dollar, and whether having a strong one was good for the economy or was it a weak one? Was that better for the economy? Classic question. It good, is. Qu an good question. macroeconomic question. You you'd want the president to know the right answer. Definitely call an economist right. to talk uh, about Economist. This. Why would you do that when you've got your national security advisor that you can call at 3 a.m. and ask him that question, a lieutenant general, <laughs> retired general in the, in the United States Army, who answered, I don't know. I don't really know much about the dollar, why don't you try calling an economist? Wait a minute. The president at 3 a.m. called his national security advisor. That's right. Michael Flynn. Right. And said, which one is good, a strong dollar or a weak dollar? Sure. And so Flynn said, call an economist. Right. <laughs> you guys right. think this is funny. Why? I, well, you know, why didn't you call an economist <laughs> in the first place? Why didn't you wait till the morning? To yeah. ask about the strong or weak dollar. Why didn't you know that going in? Right. I mean, we were talking about this before. There's evidence that Donald Trump knew full well that from the stand, well, that just to give a, the audience a primer on this, strong versus weak dollar it is simply a reflection on how our currency is trading in Forex markets against other currencies. Uh, when we call it, whether we call it strong or, or weak, it, it, it's a, it, we're referring to the trade-off that comes when our dollar is able to buy up more of a foreign currency than the reverse. Oh, right. Okay. It has to do with the value of imports. A good way right. to explain yeah. this is in terms yeah. of Trump himself. Yeah, good point. Good point. In January, saying the strong dollar is bad, it's uh, that message fits with his entire economic picture yeah. in the campaign, which was that the strong dollar 
and the correspondingly weak currencies in other countries is hurting our exporters and therefore our manufacturers and therefore our blue collar workers who have high salaries in factories. If you want high wages and more jobs, you would prefer a weak dollar versus a strong dollar. Right. So it's weird. To me. I think it's funny. Not haha funny, but <laughs> funny. Yeah, funny yeah. Like, oh no. More like <laughs> funny. Because it's it's something he'd previously articulated, something he'd be in the position to know about based on his business career, and yet he wakes up in the middle of the night, I guess, suffused with the confusion, and the only way to resolve it would be call Michael Flynn. Right. Well, maybe maybe had his speed speed dial up last. I I don't know why Michael Flynn, and I don't know why three a.m. That question came to him. Maybe there was something on cable. At that moment, have we checked? Maybe at 2.50 a.m. there was something about the dollar and why you know we weren't getting en- enough exports. So you know, the, the point like is – A really though, compelling shake weight infomercial <laughs> that, that, that bothered him. Right. Sure, it's yeah. possible. So, Sharish, so you and Christina Wilkie, uh, this was a, a multi-part scoop, this story. You know, Everyone else in media politics was following the story after you filed it this week. The other part of it was that Trump is – uh, complaining about the hand towels? Yeah, they're not nice enough, evidently. They're not soft enough. These are the Air hand Force towels one. on Air Force One. That's right. And, and by the way, these would be actual towels made of terry cloth. They are not paper towels. Uh, paper towels are what most people get that on is an right. airplane. Right. Or sometimes even at home. Well, but, but Trump oh, right, has had his right. own plane for a while. He has. Presumably he had hand towels. I wouldn't know. Uh, but – yeah, perhaps he perhaps he had much nicer towels than they have on Air Force so One. Now, now so, you so, have been on Air Force One. And the towels are in my view are just fine. They are terry cloth. They're uh they do the job. They're they don't have any Air Force logo on them, Air Force One, because otherwise everyone like myself think, would steal one. Is so, he complaining yeah. that they, they don't have logos or that the thread count is bad? I think it's the thread count. So, I think that So what's not, better, a strong towel or a weak <laughs> towel? You'd want the weak towel, right? Because that would mean it's softer. <laughs> I mean, right? the towels are too strong. Sure. It's hurting my hand. So, my dainty, so, small hand. So you guys have had kind of a debate about whether which one of these deserves you the most, and you are like, I think the three a.m. phone call with a macroeconomic question to your national security advisor is more disconcerting than the the hand towel. And you're gonna give me the case for the towels? I think if I'm the commander in chief, president of the United States. I think I get over the towels. I'm flying around on Air Force One. I think maybe um, I say, you know what? This is pretty great. And if the towels aren't quite as luxurious, Egyptian cotton, uh, I'll live with it. Not for nothing, but in Michael Lewis's famous interview with uh, President Barack Obama, Obama talked about how he had to distill decisions and concerns down to a few bare rudimentary things to think about every day in order to do his job. So there's a case to be made for why you shouldn't be, you shouldn't, the, the thought of Tal shouldn't even occur to you when you're the president of the United States. All right. No, but, we, oh, tiebreaker. I think the, the 3 a.m. phone call on strong dollar is weirder. Sharish thinks the hand towel complaining is weirder. So type, which one do you think is weirder, Jason? Okay. I'm going to say that what's weird to me is that, this White House is super duper leaky. Like, okay, this. fine, but don't dodge this tiebreak. <laughs> no, I dodged it. I dodged. No, come on. Boom, dodge. Which one's weirder, man? Boom, dodge. I've segued. I've segued. Sorry, sorry. That's a, that's a skill. Just a very elegant. Wow, that was that was some real sorry. Washington yeah. stuff right Got there. Got Point of point of privilege for the host. Drain the swamp. No, um. So we we should talk about this. This is a very. This has been a very very leaky White House. It has. And one of the things that you, you got you and Christina Wilkie obviously worked to confirm this story and corroborate it. And it's corroborated everyone's satisfaction. And and one of the big reasons why is first and foremost, Michael Flynn has has regaled people with this story. Yeah, he so, loves telling it, and. I can see why that would be a, a nice conversation starter if you're Michael Flynn and you're starting a meeting with the NSC staff or other folks and say, look, I know I ask a lot of you people. I demand a lot. I make you work long hours. But look, here's what I got to deal with, all right? You guys aren't <laughs> called at 3 a.m. and asked an off-topic question that you know nothing about. I am. And so we're all in the same boat. So that, it makes total sense why he would use this anecdote. Why I find out about the anecdote and others are finding about it, Similar anecdotes, that's a real question because typically when you start a new presidential administration, the kind of leaks you get are 
you know, this staffer is kind of a bozo, and he's really doing his bad job, uh, his job badly. P- power and, struggles, among exactly right. Top or, or, or sometimes within the agencies, you'll have leaks about a particular policy that they think is a disaster, and they want to try to scuttle it right from. And we, we have had, some, had of some of those, yeah. but rarely do you see the kind of leaks that we're seeing. A lot of, not just us. We've seen these in the New York Times, the Washington Post, elsewhere. Right. Uh, you know, the strange phone calls with foreign leaders. We have him uh, obsessing over what type of window coverings he's going to want and doesn't and, care at all about what's in the executive orders because he doesn't read them. Also, he said that the phones in the White House are the most beautiful phones he's ever seen. phones, right, right. Who says that? And the briefings have to be uh, one page long, bullet points with no more than nine bullet points. On a with page. a lot of white space around each bullet point. So right. what? So what is what are the leakers <laughs> motivated by here? The sense is um, there's something wrong with our president, and everyone ought to know this because there's going to come a time when a major decision is going to have to be made, and we are all going to have to think about the uh, rational thought process or lack thereof that got us there. That's really disturbing. That, now, people talked about this during the campaign, and there was like a consensus that it's rude to question someone's sanity. It's unethical for doctors to play along with these stories because Donald Trump is not their patient. You know, but now, to, now what's going on? If you want to get into a bit of crying wolf, too, we'll say that there was a persistent um, drumbeat in some quarters when John McCain was running for president that he had kind of like lost his marbles. There was no uh, compelling evidence of this. Um, certainly, certainly we didn't get the kind of like leaks from within or just outside the room saying, I don't know about John McCain that we're getting from Trump. Uh, but, people were just being, but, you know, it, it is something, saying, yeah, sure. But this is something that people talk about. It's just that we've never seen it talked about with this kind of alacrity yeah. or, or the, the last time we've had these sorts of concerns aired as, as near publicly as they have been was the final year of the Richard Nixon presidency, right? I mean, after everything was was going downhill and he was kind of brooding in the White House kind of by himself, similar to what we have now already, uh, we had questions about, is the president okay? I mean, he's uh, he's not himself, and we had leaks from you know the, the top staff in the White House back in 1974. We're only three weeks in, guys, and we're seeing similar types of concerns from similar types of people yeah. coming I mean, out right now. I. I, I have to say, you know, some of the other details and stories like yours and stories that I've read about this describe a president who leaving his leaving his rational thought process aside, leaving aside the fact that he's calling Michael Flynn up at 3, 3 a.m. He appears to be someone who is now more and more trapped inside a bubble of his own creation. There's talk about how he's alone at night, most nights, kind of wandering the White House, doesn't know his... And it's it's okay he doesn't know his way around the White House. He's only been there for a few weeks. Um, but the fact that he's so isolated, so by himself, so left alone for periods of time to do nothing but watch cable news and, and tweet about things, it has given me this kind of Jack Torrance at the Overlook Hotel vibe. <laughs> you know, yeah. you've always been the caretaker. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the kind of like – weird sensation this is the shining everybody and like (laughs) and and like i i do think that i do think it like i've never really gotten the impression that donald trump has many friends no i mean someone who cares about him deeply tell him the hard truths about things i feel like if he had one of those people someone would have said look you were not cut out for this job this is a lot of work you don't like work you like the path of least resistance you know what it's like to be president you take stick all the time you you have to eat shit on a daily basis do you really want that and now i see him in the white house he's surrounded by hangers-on uh opportunists certainly by the by the room full but no real friend and his his wife is not in the white house with him his son is not in the white house with him obviously it was his young his youngest son um Obviously, his family are still sort of like hanging around. Jared and, and Ivanka are in town. Uh, but I don't get the sense that he has someone who just can be, I don't know, keep him from being isolated and turning inward all the time. That's what bugs me. Yeah, and and, and that's a point that actually Elliot Cohen, who I quoted in, in the story, who was in the George W. Bush White House. He was um, actually in the State Department. He was the, one of the top lawyers there. He was also on the National Security Council uh, Deputies Committee. He pointed out that, look, every president who's been elected since Nixon, actually, um, or has been in the White House since then, including you know, Gerald Ford, 
have had folks who like and respect him and and just are not are not going to be disloyal at all because because they like him too much and that's been true certainly with Obama over the last eight years sure. it's certainly true with George W. Bush uh, Reagan George H. W. Bush and what you what you point out he doesn't have a lot of friends that's why that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so many of these leaks that nobody in that inner circle right now feels. This is my bud, and I've known him for years, and I'm not going to say anything that's going to hurt him. That isn't there, which may be a good thing, actually, for the rest of America because we're actually seeing a, a more unvarnished look of what's going on. But in terms of his mental health, I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, to be wandering around alone at night in a job that maybe you really didn't think you were going to get and you really totally didn't want, I don't know. Now, there's a, there are constitutional provisions for removing a president who's incapacitated sure. but too soon too soon too soon too soon yeah well i'll point out that friday february 10th is the 50th anniversary of the 25th amendment <laughs> it's ratified by minnesota and nevada put it over the top uh, we have it it's a good thing too soon too, too, yeah too soon i guess I, soon i guess uh but it's not too soon it's just that anybody who has a real deep and personal connection to this man reach out and talk to him because he's Alone and seemingly that's not he's not taking to it that well. Okay, Sharish, thanks for joining us. This was my quite pleasure. A, quite a story. Credit to you and Christina Wilkie for uh, for ferreting this out. Um, and and uh, I hope people read it. Uh, and if there's more of these kind of stories to come, I hope that they come soon. All right, Arthur, thanks, and we will be right back. Hello, So That Happened listeners. I want to just take a moment to ask you to do a few small favors. First, if you like the show and want to help more people find it, go over to iTunes and just leave us a review. Every review we get bumps the show a little bit higher on the podcast charts. It does make a difference, and it's going to help us build this community. Second, are there issues you'd like us to address? People you think we should talk to. You should drop us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We really do appreciate your suggestions, and we often follow up on stories, and we just like hearing feedback and criticism. So we'd love to hear from you specifically, because you're the people that matter the most to us. Now, back to the show. This is the fourth great crisis in American history. We had the revolution. We had the Civil War. We had the Great Depression of World War II. This is the great fourth turning in American history. You have an expansionist Islam, and you have an expansionist China, and they think the Judeo-Christian West is on the retreat. We're at the very beginning stages of a very brutal and bloody conflict. We're going to war in the South China Sea in five to ten years, aren't we? Remember, divine providence reigns on the just and the unjust. Your cause is just. And we're back. You've just been listening to a lot of weird rants from Steve Bannon, the uh, former head of Breitbart News, who now is uh, one of President Trump's key advisors. What we learned this week is only deep an understanding of what Steve Bannon is and does. He's an apocalypticist. He believes that we're inevitably headed to some kind of global confrontation with either uh, the Islamic faith or China, pick your poison. Uh, and the fact that he is uh, going to be advising uh, Trump on foreign policy makes us a kind of scary time for us all. Here to talk about this is Zach Carter. Hi, everyone. Who loves talking about the scary time we live in. And Paul Blumenthal, who this week uh, has written a story about Bannon and his unique worldview. Um, so, Paul. Uh, what 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 what's rattling around in this guy's uh, cage? So I guess what you know what what I wrote about this week was uh, a book that that Bannon has repeatedly made reference to in his past uh, speeches, movies he's made, and, and uh, radio interviews uh, called "The Fourth Turning," and it's a 1997 book by two generational theorists, uh, William Strauss and Neil Howe who basically came up with this uh, cyclical theory of American history. 
that it moves from crisis point to a kind of awakening and then to an unraveling and then to another crisis point. And essentially, they said in 1997 that America would be entering another one of these crisis points around 2005. Um, and, you know, somewhere in the early 2000s, uh, I believe Steve Bannon, you know, kind of cottoned to this theory. And and it, it really pops up in, in a lot of his work. He, he made a movie called Generation Zero, which basically states that the this fourth turning this new crisis moment started on september 18th 2008 when hank paulson and ben bernanke went up to capitol hill and asked for congress to bail out the banks um that you know this was an extreme crisis moment where the american people had actually caused their own self-destruction through greed uh and, and and you know uh other actions that, that, that we essentially destroyed our own economic system um, so he believes that that started this crisis moment. And within these crisis moments, the past ones that Strauss and Howe have identified are the American Revolution, the Civil War, the Great Depression and World War II. What you notice about these uh, crisis moments is that they involve escalating levels of violence. Yeah. And uh, Bannon seems to be interested in this concept that uh, this crisis moment, like past crisis moments, will need an escalating level of violence. And in a lot of his language, he talks about we're at war. I mean, there's literally a quote of him describing uh, how he operated Breitbart, which was it's war, it's war. Every day we're at war. We tell people America is at war. Uh, you know, he says we're in a hundred year struggle with radical Islam. He said, you know, we're going to war with in the South China Sea in 10 to 15 years. Aren't we? Asking, five to 10. Oh, five, five to 10. OK, so um, w within the Trump administration, perhaps. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I think it's interesting that that he has talked about clearly has ingested and believes in this kind of apocalyptic theory about the current moment. And here he is basically as the top aide writing rules, writing executive orders for the president of the United States with, with this sort of uh, this completely apocalyptic belief. So we've heard over the past few days about how uh, ISIS has actually been celebrating this Muslim ban. They call it the Blessed Ban. Uh, and they're very, very excited about it. And you would think, well, it's probably not a good foreign policy decision to give ISIS a win here. But when you consider it through the prism of Steve Bannon and his worldview, one thinks that perhaps it's being done intentionally to sort of foment more violence between us and ISIS. Is that possibilities well i mean hearing? you know like isis is one of their their grand goals is to um, eliminate this thing called the gray zone and the gray zone is essentially an area where muslims christian secular people europe the muslim world can get along and you know and like where, where we actually you know can discuss and relate to each other and you know they they want to polarize uh every muslim against every european against every american against every christian they want a crusading war. And it seems in a lot of ways that Bannon and a lot of the people that he associates with want the same thing. And, you know, just from a different perspective. Um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of people out there who would like to, you know, keep the gray zone, who would like to prevent uh, Europe and America and the Not as, as climb as, the mountain of conflict. As yeah, exactly. As, as, you know, as Bannon calls it, the Judeo-Christian West from, you know, going on a crusading war against the muslim world um you know i think you know this is pope francis's one of his main goals is to prevent this from happening zach what's kind of incredible to me is that a lot of people who voted for trump and i mean a lot of them voted for him precisely because they thought he'd keep us out of crazy wars a lot yeah. of people have come to me and said you don't understand. We voted for Trump because Hillary Clinton is a super hawk. She's going to keep us embedded in dumb wars. Uh, we don't want that. And I, I've never, I've never been able to figure out where they got the signal from Trump that he's some kind of dove. But well, I mean, Trump on on foreign policy and on economic policy, he would talk out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, he would say on uh, on one day that you know the the Iraq War was a terrible mistake, a stupid war that we never should have gotten involved in, and he's not going to get us involved in dumb wars. And on the other, he would say, you know, we're going to bomb the shit out of them as his solution to all problems. Um, you know, on economic policy, he would say, you know, those bankers, they're killers one day. And the other, you know, later in the same freaking speech, he'd say, and that's why I'm going to repeal Dodd-Frank. Uh, you know, he did this the whole time. So people who wanted to pick and choose 
from obviously contradictory statements, um, we're, we're able to do that. But I think one of the things that's interesting about Bannon is that for a long time, I and others have have believed that his his exploitation of this populist uprising that happened after the, the financial crisis has really been brilliant. I mean, it's kind of horrifying, but it's it was also really smart. It was something the Democratic Party sort of just missed the cultural signals that were happening there. Sure, they're still steeped in third right. way nonsense. Exactly. Yeah. Didn't didn't see and that literally this was... ran a Clinton for president. Right. Didn't see yeah. that this this was an interesting moment. Um, and in these elements of this, you know, these fourth crises and stuff that these guys lay out in this quack theory. Um, look, it's 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 it is true that the American Revolution was followed by the Civil War, which was followed by World War Two. Right. <laughs> which, and then Steve Bannon's <laughs> right again that that was followed by the financial <laughs> crisis. But anytime you have these people start talking about cyclical theories. Good things are followed by bad things unless everything ends or we enter, you know, uh, uh, you know, some period of, of eternal grace. There, there will always be cycles of good and bad. Good things will follow bad things and they will follow again. That's just how the concepts work. Uh, and the fact that Steve Bannon thinks that the financial crisis means we, also, we have to now go enter into a 100-year war with radical Islam. It seems there's strange. no connection between these things. It's just, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's just a mess. Uh, uh, that's that's it's it's a, it's stupid science fiction. Like I, I'm not, I don't mean to malign science fiction because I love science fiction, but it is a stupid form of science fiction dressed up as some sort of uh, piece of you know intellectual material. Uh, that should serve as a foundation for policy. And it is absolutely terrifying. I mean, Paul, can, can you tell us about the gray champion figure? I mean, I think people really need to know about the oh, gray champion. Oh, yeah, I want to hear about the gray champion. Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll talk about the gray, the gray champion, champion, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about cycles of history and that kind of stuff. So essentially the, the – It's Daenerys the, the, Targaryen, the, isn't it? That's the gray champion. I don't know. It could be – I think it's Jon Snow. We'll, we'll find out <laughs> unless he dies again. I'm rooting for the White Walkers in that one. But go ahead. Tell us about the great champion. So in this, uh, you know, in Strauss and Howe's theory, you know, I mean, it's very much pop sociology. It's geared towards a pop audience. And uh, so it uses a lot of these like made up phrases to define the uh, ge the generational archetypes that they use. So certain people are you know, the prophet generation or the artist generation. There's the nomad generation and the millennials, which they, they coined that phrase, so you can blame them for that, uh, are, are, the, are the hero generation. And the hero generation who come up in the fourth turning will be led by a supposed gray champion, which would be a elder statesman of the prophet generation, someone from who are the boomers. So ostensibly a uh, mr right donald, away i'm like mr nope. donald j trump <laughs> right away i'm like nope no good's coming out of boom generation so, i mean you, you know that that's what it, it sounds like you know it's like you know gandalf the gray coming riding over the hill to to save us at, at the battle when the orcs are coming um that you know it sounds like a young young adult fiction some dystopian novel but i mean you know that's their theory it's kind of uh strange to have somebody in the white house who is very attached to this kind of pop theory but it's not like uh you know historians kick around cyclical theories all the time so the, you know arthur schlesinger had his cycles of american history that proved to be so obviously is, wrong is the idea that the great champion is donald trump a man who uh sometimes forgets that rudy giuliani is sitting right next to him in the room that's the great champion. I'm. I mean, speak uh, out loud, man. You know, the I, podcast people can't hear I, I your can't, strange looks. I can't say if if Steve Bannon actually believes who is the great champion, or if he, uh, you know, believes directly in every single little bit of the fourth turning. Uh, uh, you know, it's. I don't know what to call it. Theology, eschatology, whatever you'd want to describe it as. Metaphysics. But, I mean, he certainly has said in speeches this is the great fourth turning this is the great fourth you know crisis in american history he clearly believes that we are in an existential crisis that will require some kind of strong leader to get us out of it and may as he seems to imply require a kind of existential bloody fight How, so okay where where does Bannon see the end game here? Because to my mind, you either the earth the earth is either a smoking cinder, and the cockroaches have the run of the place, or you have a world where liberal democracy is completely gone. 
I mean, if we're gonna go, uh, if we're gonna go by Strauss and Howe's theory, let's just do that. Let's just play along for now. They okay, give, let's play along. They they give four specific outcomes of these crises. Oh goody! Okay, so what are the four specific so outcomes? So the, the positive one is we will see a rebirth of America. A new political order will take hold. Uh, a, a greater sense of community will be created. Everybody will be joined together under this new belief. Like, yeah, that's, you know, this, that's the same thing Geico says about their car insurance, but go so on with the other outcomes. So another outcome could be uh, this being the end of, uh, you know, Ameri- America as a successful country. So it could be the basically the end of constitutional democracy as we know it. So that's pretty bad. I think people seem to be talking about that a lot lately. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the third one would be the end of modernity. Because uh, Strauss and Howe trace back their cycles of history back to around the 1500s as the beginning of the modern era uh, that get, gave rise to the Enlightenment, that gave rise to our current world, world order. Um, so so that could end and we could see another uh, Dark Ages. So that's great. And then the, the fourth one is we could see omnicidal genocide and the complete obliteration of the human race. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like I'd roll them bones. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking A. This is the dumbest theory in the freaking world. This Have, is so dumb. So what? what, what <laughs> it's it is the case that we're in a, in a moment of crisis right now. Donald Trump's presidency is creating a series of crises for for the American government, the American system of government. That's true. The financial crisis was literally a crisis, but that this crap about turnings and regeneration and oh Jesus Christ! I think Steve Bannon would say the Jews don't get it, man. What's weird is that I find oftentimes Steve Bannon seems to have a firmer grip on reality than a lot of leading Republicans who just think that yeah, a lot know, of people everything is fine with with American sure. capitalism and as long as we repeal a few more regulations. I think it's it'll important to give out. Steve Bannon credit for what he gets right, and he gets a lot of things right about the way uh, the country has moved in the wake of the financial crisis. That's and why I he think scares he, me more than any other yeah, Trump advisor. It's 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 like he's taken the sort of same knowledge that that we've tried to spread in this world. Uh, but we've, we've been trying to do it for virtuous purposes <laughs> and to actually help people. We are anti-apocalypse. Right. This podcast we're... is anti-apocalypse. Right. And we're also anti-monopolist, you know, and we would like to see strongholds of political and economic power broken up and redistributed. People don't have them. It's not clear that Steve Bannon actually wants that. I think that Steve Bannon uh, is kind of a monopoly power guy. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know. Certainly I've... you're not going to win an apocalyptic war without monopoly power. Am I right? I mean, in general, monopolies uh, tend to concentrate during times of war, so that nation states can organize and mobilize for the war. That that does seem to be the case. I mean, I, I like to refer to Steve Bannon sometimes as an upside down Bernie Sanders. You know, he mm. he sees you know, oh, there's this global economic crisis, and he talks about it and gave a sort of coherent argument about why this was bad for for the right. Uh, but his answer is. You know, not necessarily break up the big banks, but like cut government spending, cut regulations, draw up the bridges, kick out the immigrants. Um, you know, it, go it's, to it's, war and go to <laughs> and go to war, and and that you know his, his vision, which overlaps with you know what Strauss and Howe talk about, is, is that all of these things are linked, and he repeatedly says this: like the commodity markets collapses are linked to uh, mig- the migration crisis. That, you know, Muslim radicalism connects up with, uh, you know, a fifth column in America of Muslim organizations, Jewish organizations and rich liberals who want to undermine the American (laughs) idea through through cultural Marxism. Yes. You know, that this will undermine the so-called Judeo-Christian West, Um, that, that basically we will allow our civilization to be compromised by a flood of migrants that will destroy america and christian european civilization along the lines of say like the fall of constantinople like this is the kind of apocalyptic thinking that links up with a sort of um not entirely clear christian eschatology and and catholic history that um very crusader oriented yeah oh yikes Yeah. Yeep. Oops. Uh, this is going to be a pretty bumpy ride for us, guys. Yep. And But 
and all we have standing in the way of the apocalypse are our state and hoary democratic norms as enacted by our government bureaucracy. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you once again for painting us as betwixt and between Scylla and Charybdis. Um, uh, what a great way to end the podcast on. We'll be back next week. If we survive, stick around. We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Paul Blumenthal, Zach Carter, S.V. Date, and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.